We've been talking a lot about conditioning and the conditioned nature of our experience and a lot about the conditioned nature of suffering. The Buddha had a a description of the conditions that lead to the arising of suffering. Many of you are familiar probably with this teaching, the teaching of dependent origination. And that is not the topic of this talk. And yet it's close. This teaching of um, dependent origination describes a process by which suffering comes to be. Conditions that basically support the arising of suffering. Feeling leads to craving, leads to clinging, leads to becoming or selfing, leads to birth, leads to aging, sickness and death leads to suffering. And yet this teaching of um, conditioning, of the conditioned nature of our experience, of dependent co-arising, has a more general form, a more general frame. And in one place the Buddha uh, said that this teaching of, of conditioning could be described something like, when this is, that is. When this arises, that arises. When this isn't, that isn't. When this ceases, that ceases. And this understanding about conditioning, especially this part about the ceasing, when this isn't, that isn't, when this ceases, that ceases, we can begin to recognize and understand if there are conditions that come into play to create suffering, that when this is, that is, when this isn't, that isn't, means that there are, that when those conditions cease, suffering ceases. And so this is one way to understand how conditions might lead to freedom. The ceasing of the conditions that create suffering can lead to the ceasing of suffering. And so letting go of the conditions that create suffering, suffering doesn't arise. And so for example, the the chain of dependent origination, one of the ways that I really understand it is the top of that chain, the head of the chain there, is ignorance. And the, sometimes this chain of dependent origination is called dependent co-arising. And we could say that when ignorance ari- is arising, all the conditions co-arising with ignorance means that suffering is arising. So when ignorance is arising, suffering is arising. 
So this chain of dependent origination, we often think about it as, well, this happens and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens, kind of in a causal link. But I actually understand it more as a co-arising. So when ignorance is present, suffering is happening. And so when ignorance is not present, when feeling for instance, when pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, is met with mindfulness and wisdom rather than ignorance, then the conditions are different. And feeling doesn't lead to craving. And so the craving not arising means the clinging doesn't arise, means the becoming doesn't arise, means the suffering doesn't arise. And so this is one way that there is an understanding of, of how the conditions and this teaching of conditionality, how it can support us in freedom. And in that in that exploration, the, the work is really to understand suffering and understand the ignorance, creating different conditions so that that chain of suffering doesn't, doesn't happen. And so it really is a kind of a, a letting go of the conditions that lead to suffering. And a lot of what we've been talking about here is how to cultivate conditions that support letting go. So this is another framing of dependent origination, actually. What what are the, the, the traditional teaching of dependent origination talks about how suffering is created. There's another teaching of dependent origination called transcendent dependent origination. And this is the topic of the talk. (laughs) And it, it describes what are conditions that support freedom. Another way to look at it, or what are the conditions that support the mind releasing, letting go? And so the Buddha actually asked this question. At times he asked the question, what is it that makes suffering arise? And there's, there are teachings where it describes you know, how he came to understand this chain of dependent origination almost by working backwards from, well, there's what, when suffering arises, what, what, what needs to arise in order for suffering to arise? Birth needs to arise for suffering to arise. And what needs to arise in order for birth to arise? Becoming. And so he kind of worked his way back to understand ignorance at the root of that chain. But he also asked the question, what are the supporting conditions for freedom? And he did a similar kind of reflection and exploration, working his way back and came up with also 12 links, at least in this framing, that lead us to freedom. 
That freedom has supporting conditions. And one of the things I find most interesting about, well, there's several things, but one of the things I love about this is that the first link in this chain is suffering. Suffering is a supportive condition for freedom. It needs, it's not just suffering in and of itself will support the movement in the direction of freedom. We know that. We see the world not naturally heading in the direction of freedom. And so understanding this as a supporting condition, there's some other things that come into play to create the conditions for suffering to be transformative, for suffering to lead in the direction of freedom. The first piece is really meeting it, acknowledging it as suffering. Really understand, yes, this is suffering. And the second is hearing some teachings, hearing essentially that there may be a path that would lead us to freedom, to lead us to the release of suffering. The Buddha is said to have said, suffering, I tell you, leads to bewilderment or to search. And if it leads to search, if it leads one to, as in his own journey, it is said, he asks the question, does anyone know a way or two out of this suffering? If it leads to that kind of reflection, we begin on some we begin on a journey to look at look for perhaps teachings or supports to help us find a path. And if we encounter a teaching that if the mind is receptive and able to hear that teaching then suffering becomes a supporting condition for faith. And this is the first link in this chain. Now I'm not going to do this talk on transcendent dependent origination in a kind of a typical way where I might go through all of the links in some detail. I'm actually gonna skim over many of them and focus on two in particular in the later part of the chain, but I'm going to kind of give you the broad brush strokes, the kind of big picture of this teaching. And so just to begin, the links are suffering is a supportive condition for faith to arise. Faith supports delight, Delight supports rapture or joy. Joy supports tranquility, supports happiness, supports concentration. That part's really what we've been doing on this retreat, those six links. Concentration supports knowledge and vision of things as they are, seeing experience clearly. 
This knowledge and vision of things as they are supports disenchantment. Basically disenchantment with our usual ways of finding happiness. Seeing that they're not really very reliable methods or ways to find happiness. Knowledge and vision of things as they are supports disenchantment. Disenchantment supports dispassion. Dispassion supports release. And release is followed by basically understanding that one has been freed. So this, um, the, the sutta in which this teaching is described, is taught, has an, has an analogy uh, about how this process works. And it says, just, you know, think about a mountain. You know, the mountain, when rain runs down the mountain, it will naturally run downhill and it will find crevices and gullies and those crevices and gullies will fill with the rain and those will overflow. And then they will then uh, run further down to the streams, to the rivers, to the ocean. That inexorably the water landing on that mountain runs downhill because that is the nature of things. And similarly, this unfolding of this path, this unfolding of these conditions is a natural unfolding. As the conditions as the conditions for faith arise, as suffering is met with some wisdom, some hearing of a teaching, and that, and that um, hearing of that teaching inclines one to engage, that's really where faith begins, with the willingness to put these teachings into practice. And so while there is a natural unfolding, it's not a natural unfolding where we sit back like a lump and let something happen. Because part of the natural unfolding is engagement. That hearing, yes, there is a way. Here are some teachings. Here are some practices. Put these practices into place. As the Buddha said, Here are the roots of trees. Sit, meditate, lest you regret it later. There are actions that we are encouraged to take up and an inspiration that this heads us in the direction of freedom. And so some of us hear that and begin to engage. And so this path, this this very... um, natural unfolding. Part of the natural unfolding of that is that our system responds and engages. And so it is not, it's not a path of non-doing. There is engagement. It doesn't mean that we don't do any work. And yet as the path unfolds, as this, this kind of 
these conditions unfold, we can start to see how these conditions, they're, they're like these feedback loops between some of these links. Every pair, essentially, can be looked at as, you know, what the first pair, so for instance, faith supports delight. When we have faith, delight can arise partly from the sense of, oh, maybe there's a possibility for freedom. So there, there can be a, some inspiration, some willingness to engage. And with that delight, and perhaps a little bit of engagement, it can feed back to support more faith. So these kinds of feedback loops are everywhere in this teaching. The first time we, f- we touch into really seeing something clearly. The other night I described that experience of cutting the apple and seeing how the mind was, that that the memory arose and the mind was inclined towards jumping on that thought to think more thoughts, to get angry, but then seeing that that way lies suffering, the mind just dropped it and let it go. That moment was a very powerful confirmation of the power of the practice. I think I said, you know, like, I was kind of blown away. It's like, wow, this stuff works. I'm going to do this. So that experience really supported faith, supported more engagement. So there are multiple feedback loops in this process. So this first part of this transcendent dependent origination describes the wholesome states that condition opening to understanding, faith, delight, rapture, tranquility, happiness, and concentration. And so suffering supports the arising of faith when there is wisdom applied, when when wisdom is heard, that arising of suffering can lead to the arising of faith. And with that faith, there's the willingness to engage. There's a delight, perhaps, in finding the path, the engagement in ethical conduct, the delight of seeing how being uh, engaged with care with our fellow human beings in this relational field, as Brian was talking about, being engaged with care and love creates delight, non-remorse, the delight of, of non-remorse. And as we begin to engage more in the practice, there can be joy that arises as we start to experience moments maybe sometimes short moments, sometimes longer moments, when we recognize the hindrances are not so strong. Sometimes they fall away completely. And that experience, this uh, experience of the hindrances falling away is said to be, there's a term for it in the suttas, it's called the bliss of seclusion. 
we're secluded from those unwholesome states of mind. And very naturally in being secluded from those unwholesome states of mind, there is joy. And yet too, I've seen in my own experience of the practice that there are times when the, the wisdom of meeting experience, just the mindfulness and wisdom meeting experience, there's a joy in the engagement. Sometimes I've seen something arise like, Wow, there's impatience, wow. So much delight in seeing the mind able to hold this. Joy in, in, in being able to meet what we previously got pulled under by. And so there can be this, it's not always that this, uh, this sense of joy comes when there isn't any hindrances in the mind. Sometimes it's the ability to hold those hindrances with wisdom and mindfulness that can bring joy also. Amusement, delight. And then as the mind settles further, it begins to recognize that sometimes that, that, um, that joy, that rapture has kind of an energetic quality to it that feels just a little bit agitating. And as the mind begins to get more attuned to even a a subtle agitation, the subtle agitation contained in joy, the mind just not, it's not that it's, it's agitated by hindrances, but it's just agitated by energy maybe slightly restless with energy, then the mind begins to kind of release that and tranquility follows. The mind settles even further and then very naturally happiness is a, um, an arising, the sweetness of being present. These three together, they, 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 they kind of can, we can see how they, they interconnect sometimes in our, in our practice. At one time I was Uh, You know, the energy of joy can sometimes be pretty strong and a little bit unpleasant even. Especially when it's unfamiliar. I remember sitting at my kitchen table one day and I was just having a meal and present for what was happening and there was just this upwelling of joy. Really powerful upwelling of joy. And my mind was like, whoa, that's intense. I don't think I can handle that. And there was a little bit of like, trying to like hold it down a little bit because it was so intense. And a little bit of wisdom just whizzed through my mind in that moment, which was said something like, well, it's okay, it'll pass. <laughs> and... Uh, and at that point, the, what, the, the mind that had been kind of pushing down to try to contain that joy, it just let go. And then the joy got really strong. 
it, it was like this huge wave. But, but in not being um, either repressed or kind of fed, it just like was this wave that, that arose and then whew, like ebbed. And that ebbing was experienced as a releasing of, and, and a tranquility. And on the other side of that was just sweet happiness. And so these three, uh, rapture, tranquility, and happiness can have this kind of interrelationship at times. And so one of the things, another thing I really love about this teaching is how much it's pointing to. So this is a, this is a description of the conditions leading to freedom. So starts with suffering <laughs> and yet faith, delight, joy, happiness are part of our journey, part of our path. Jill talked about the Brahma Viharas the other day. This is also similar kind of terrain in a way, this terrain of these beautiful, wholesome qualities. And they're a very natural part of our path. Sometimes they come as we incline the mind towards the qualities. Sometimes we can incline our minds in the direction of these qualities. And sometimes they're just naturally arising as a, as a consequence of meeting experience with wisdom. We don't... I would say, you know, sometimes, sometimes minds will tend to, to um, uh, maybe orient more towards the cultivation of the, the beautiful qualities, the Brahma Viharas and the wholesome qualities of love and joy. And, um, and that's a, an easy doorway for some. And for others, the doorway may be more the wisdom doorway. But all of the doorways that lead in to this teaching, they all meet somewhere in the middle. And so the path of orienting around love and wisdom, I mean, around love and joy can point us towards wisdom. And the orientation from wisdom can also take us and point us towards compassion and love. And so I see that there's not, they're not so not so separate. And then happiness is the supporting condition for concentration. This is useful to remember. Certainly not what I had the idea of when I started my practice. I thought the supporting condition for concentration was just slogging effort forcing my mind to stay put. Well, it's much easier for the mind to gather and collect when it's experiencing a kind of delight in being present. And so this happiness, this happiness of this path is not our usual kind of happiness. It's not the happiness of having something that we want, but it's more a happiness related to wholesome 
conduct, ethical conduct, to letting go, to relinquishment. It's a pleasure, the happiness is a pleasure that arises in the mind as disturbance is released. And that, kind of the release of disturbance in the mind also creates the conditions. So the release of disturbance creates the conditions for happiness. A different kind of happiness. Sometimes it's a, it's a flavor of happiness we have to acquire a taste for. But that, that, that non-disturbance, that, that condition of non-disturbance in the mind, one way of, of understanding concentration is as non-distractedness. And non-disturbance supports non-distractedness. And so this is concentration, this non-distracted mind. Different kinds of concentration are possible in this practice. The one-pointed concentration where we, where our mind kind of allows itself to connect with one experience and other experience falls away. This is one form of the concentration. And the, the, the teachings talk about this form of concentration as a supportive condition for freedom, but not in and of themselves. It is the, the power of that mind that can settle and stabilize, that can then see things as they are. And so the concentrated mind is turned towards noticing things as they are. The other form of concentration is the moment-to-moment concentration. Noticing just this moment, this moment, this moment, the continuity of mindfulness that we've been talking about. The term for this in the Pali is kanika samadhi, moment-to-moment samadhi. And basically it's a samadhi where the mindfulness is not pulled out of the present moment, So in that way, it's not distracted. Each moment the mind lands on experience and it's not distracted to start thinking about it and proliferating about it. The next moment there's an experience and it knows that one and the next one and the next one. Sometimes this kind of of samadhi feels unfamiliar to to people if you've been mostly doing the one-pointed concentration and it may feel like the mind is distracted because it's not staying with one thing. But the, 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 the question there is, are you aware? Is the mind stable in awareness? Is moment after moment, is there an awareness of what is happening? And this kind of concentration essentially is developed the, 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 um, the next link in the, in the chain, knowing and seeing things as they are. Knowledge and vision of things as they are. Essentially this, this kind of concentration, the moment-to-moment concentration, develops through meeting moment after moment. And it is developing that uh, capacity to know and see things as they are. And so in the one case where the, the mind kind of settles into one-pointed concentration, they're, they're at some point... Um, 
in order to continue on the path towards freedom, there needs to be a turning of that concentration towards understanding experience in its changing nature. Essentially, that's, that's the shift that we make to shift a concentration practice into a Vipassana practice. We turn that mind that's been stable to noticing changing experience. In the moment-to-moment concentration practice, we're already noticing changing experience. So both of these forms of concentration can be used in the service of liberation. And that framing for me, that, 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 those words were very supportive for me as I was um, in various times in my practice, but in particular when I was doing concentration practice, at times I wondered, why am I doing this? And then I remembered, right, this is in the service of freedom. This is in the service of liberation. That is the purpose here. So the concentrated mind, when turned to changing experience, begins to reveal the impermanent, unreliable, not-self nature of experience. And this is the mind beginning to touch into this knowledge and vision of things as they are understanding the impermanent, unreliable, not-self nature of experience. And so all of those first conditions, the, the first uh, faith, delight, rapture, tranquility, happiness, concentration, they're kind of creating the mind in a place, in a, in a, in a state whereby it can meet experience, where it can meet impermanence, it can meet dukkha, and be interested in understanding it rather than trying to fix it or change it. So this is, this is a key tipping point in this chain of transcendent dependent origination, this, this shift to knowledge and vision of things as they are. And the next several links in the chain begin to point to how suffering is released. So knowledge and vision of things as they are supports us beginning to be disenchanted with our usual framing of living our lives. This is the next link in the chain, disenchantment. I'm going to spend some time on these next two, a little bit more time on these next two disenchantment and dispassion. So disenchantment is a natural kind of consequence of beginning to recognize at a very deep level the impermanent 
an unreliable nature of experience. We also see the conditioned nature of experience. That there's no one doing, choosing, deciding. There are decisions made, there are conditions arising. And so we become disenchanted with our sense of self and we become disenchanted with the habits and patterns associated with that sense of self that have um, been our usual way of engaging in the world. I like this term, the translation here. Uh, The term is nibida. And uh, I like the translation disenchantment because it really does point to that essentially our minds have been caught up in some kind of magic show believing its story, believing delusion's story that getting this is what's going to make me happy. Getting rid of this thing, that's going to make me happy. As we see with our own direct experience that that is not very reliable. That that kind of happiness, yes, there is a kind of happiness that comes from getting what we want, doesn't last very long. And we see that. We see that unreliability very directly. And so we see that we have been caught in this illusion this enchantment, essentially, of ignorance. Delusion creates an illusion that we can be happy in these ways. And the clear seeing, knowledge and vision of things as they are, begins to burst that bubble. And we clearly see, yeah, that's not the way doesn't seem to work very well. Bhikkhu Bodhi has a description of the experience of disenchantment that I'll read to you. Nibida, the Pali term for disenchantment, signifies in short, the serene, dignified withdrawal from phenomena when their illusion of permanence, pleasure, and selfhood have been shattered by the light of correct knowledge and vision of things as they are. That makes it sound pretty peaceful. A serene, dignified withdrawal from phenomena. In my experience, it's not necessarily so serene. nor even feel very dignified. It can feel pretty messy at this point in practice. This point where the mind begins to see the ways that it had um, been used to finding things to land on, ways to find happiness, when all of those, kind of the rug gets pulled out from all of those, the mind kind of is not very happy about this. And so 
this experience of disenchantment and in another teaching of another place and primarily in the commentaries it talks about a whole range of experiences that happen around this point. A whole range of relationships to seeing that things are impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable. And this is this terrain of disenchantment. It's not, it's not a simple like, oh, see things as they are. Oh, I'm disenchanted. <laughs> it's like, it's like the, the, they're deep, deep inside of us, these deep, like, no, it can't be that way. No, there's got to be some place to land. No, I need my security. And, and it's like some of those come from a very, like, nonverbal place. And so sometimes at this point in the practice, when we're, we're starting to see just how unreliable things are. Our mind goes through many kind of like clinging on to the cliff with our fingernails. No. So there's, there's a bunch of different emotional flavors that are described in the teachings around how the mind, it's kind of like these, these, these uh, kind of the last, ga- the gasps of, of deep, deeper kind of clinging around the release into uh, deeply letting go into the impermanent, unreliable nature of experience. Sometimes this experience starting to feel into that. And I've heard some of you talk about these things. Some language that, that gets used here is, it feels like there's just nowhere to land. Nothing to cling to. Nothing, nothing works. Groundlessness. Those kinds of, of um, that kind of language comes, comes to us as we recognize that the way that we had landed on things is not really a landing. It's not really reliable. And so there are different ways the mind relates to this. Groundlessness, nothing to land on, nowhere to cling. It sometimes can be experienced in one translation of this word, nibida, is sometimes um, disgust or revulsion. And so that can be an emotional flavor that happens at this point. This flavor of, Sometimes this can have physical effects. Nausea, for instance, can, it can have that effect on us. The, the main work is in the mind you know, to, to begin to recognize. And what I will say here is in this phase of disenchantment, it's not so helpful necessarily to try to like say, oh, okay, well, yeah, this, this disgust is happening, but I really, I need, to, I need to just be with this feeling of groundlessness or this feeling of just being, um, you know, nowhere to land. The, the path here, 
The path lies in recognizing their relationship. And so in this place where we really start to have emotional responses to impermanence, reactive emotional responses to impermanence, actually the path is just the same. Notice the relationship. Notice that reactivity. It's like revulsion to know where to land is happening. That's just another phenomenon in our mind. It's, it's a phenomenon, it's, 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 it's our, it's, it's, um, it's kind of deeper forms of clinging that are related to the letting go around impermanence. And so with all of these different relationships, the path is notice the relationship. And so sometimes the relationship to seeing this impermanent, nowhere to land, is fear. This, the feeling of security is gone. We've, ha- we've had this illusion of security of I can create something to land on and I'll land there. We've had that as an illusion. And when, when that illusion is burst, that there isn't anywhere to land, our mind isn't just ready to say, oh, nowhere to land. It gets terrified at times. Terror can be a response here. So there can be a, a, sometimes a sense of overwhelm at how fast we're seeing things change. That can also lead to fear. A sen- again, it's like, I can't keep up with this. Well, fortunately, you don't have to do that. The mind will do it. That was one, one exploration for myself in that place. I felt like I had to somehow try to keep up with the fast pace of the change. It's like, I can't do that. And then stepping back, it's, it's more just kind of recognizing, wow, instead of trying to um, remember or recognize all the different things that are changing, there's more just, wow, this is the experience of change. It feels like streaming. It feels like popping. It feels like dissolving. It feels like different flavors of that. And so not feeling like you have to keep up with all the things that are dissolving or popping or streaming, but just this experience of streaming. That was helpful for me in in this kind of place. Another experience, another relationship that can happen at this point is, it's something like homesickness. One of my um, one of my teachers, Saira Ujanaka, named it this way. He said, well, "You can feel homesick," and my um, understanding of that is kind of like we're homesick for the familiar, the way our mind was used to being. It's like that's not there anymore. We're not home in our familiar home. So there can be that sense of, of feeling a little bereft. Again, notice the relationship. Notice the relationship. Homesickness is arising. Feeling of bereft is arising. You know, this point of practice is
not pleasant. And this is partly why I'm talking about it because um, we do sometimes believe that if I were doing it right, it would always be pleasant. Or at least it would feel like the mind was balanced. But this point in practice can feel spectacularly unbalanced. Another flavor of relationship at this point can be boredom. Um, Like, enough already. Had enough of this seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching. Just feeling like you're constantly just being impinged on. It can, it, can, it can have a flavor initially perhaps of feeling of oppressiveness, like uh, seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, toughing. Uh. At one point I was on retreat and, and I was kind of in this terrain and it's like every sense impression was like, uh, it was like so strong, so overwhelming and a frog, this is its spirit rock and a frog, the frogs were out and one night the frogs started croaking. Then first there was one frog and it felt like this screeching through my whole system. It's like, ugh. And then another frog, and then another frog, and then it was like a whole chorus of frogs, and I was like, I could barely hang in there. It was so unpleasant, so oppressive. And I didn't really know at that point to notice oppressiveness is happening. I was trying to stay with the frog sound. That's not so helpful. Oh, oppression. The feeling of being of oppressive experience. That's what's happening. And after that kind of feeling of oppressiveness passes, sometimes it's just boredom. It's just, yeah, more seeing, smelling, hearing. Is this everything? Is this all there is? Seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, stuff in the mind? Yes. As Joseph says, only six things ever happen. That's all that goes on. And it's at a certain stage, it just, it just can feel like there's disinterest. It's like the mind loses interest in this phenomenon. So that's another flavor of relationship at this point. Can also, what can arise here too is not wanting to practice. The mind just, just give up. If you notice that, that too is just an arising. When I finally recognize, oh, not wanting to practice is arising. I can practice with that. What a relief. You know, it's like the mind might believe not wanting to practice. And it's, it's just a thought. But if it believes not wanting to practice, and it, I, at least it, initially in my mind, it's, I, felt, I felt at first betrayed so I felt like I either had to um, like change that state because if I didn't want to practice, it meant something. And it meant that my mind was betraying me somehow. Or it meant I should stop practicing. The middle way, not wanting to practice, is happening. That can be known. And so the mind goes through this variety of relationships at this point. 
variety of relationships to the impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable nature of experience. And as our minds get more balanced around this, the mind comes into more of a sense of equanimity, then a deeper letting go can happen. And this is where the mind moves into dispassion. And the Buddha talked about how this kind of fades our this word viraga is that is translated as dispassion actually means fading away. It's kind of a fading away of our desire, of our clinging, of our craving. And so the Buddha talks about this. I abandoned craving for sensual pleasures. I removed the fever for sensual pleasures and I abide without thirst, with a mind inwardly at peace. I see other beings who are not free from lust for sensual pleasures being devoured by craving and I do not envy them. Why is that? Because there is a delight apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, which surpasses even divine bliss. Since I take delight in that, I do not envy what is inferior. So this points to some of the ways that the the fading can happen. He points to the fading away around sense desire. That, That craving towards wanting to have pleasant, get rid of unpleasant in the sense realm. That, that attachment to sense pleasure begins to fade. And that may be replaced by a little bit of attachment to meditative states, to the bliss, the delight, the joy, the happiness, those first parts of this chain of dependent origination where there may be some attachment there. Almost, it's kind of like, almost like we can let go of the attachment to sense pleasure by picking up this attachment to these wholesome states. And yet, the whole of the practice leading to non-attachment points us at some point to also letting go of those wholesome states. The fading away of attachment to any state. And this, when the Buddha said, there's a delight apart from sense pleasures which surpasses even divine bliss. That's what he's pointing to, the the divine bliss being the delight of concentration. There's a delight that surpasses that which is the letting go of attachment to any state. And this is this fading away, this dispassion. And again, this, I mean, even the term fading away to me points to how this might be a gradual process. Cloth fades when left in the sun, the dye in the cloth fades gradually. And so this fading away, you know, maybe initially there's a a fading away of certain levels of 
attachment or clinging. And maybe we do pick up an attachment to concentration or happiness that helps us to let go of attachment around sense pleasures. And so there's this kind of fading happening almost in a staged fashion. Not necessarily, again, just like, oh, disenchantment, dispassion, done, done. It's not like that in my experience. It's much more gradual, this awakening. And sometimes the fading away experience, the, the, the sense of understanding that letting go, that, that that even can come and go. There might be times where we recognize, yeah, nothing to cling to. And, and feel, just definitely recognize the, the kind of sense of balance and equanimity around that, kind of a clear seeing of that. The mind really lets go. But then delusion returns. In a later time we might find ourselves caught in the grip of wanting again. And so again, it's not... This, my, my sense of this unfolding isn't that it's like a continually deepening linear progression. It's got much more uh, ebbs and flows. And so this dispassion the dispassion is understood really as being this release of attachment. Bhikkhu Bodhi in a commentary about this sutta says this is really the taste of freedom, this mind opening to releasing attachment. And this word, um, dispassion, is sometimes used as synonymous with with nibbana, with freedom. There's one definition of nibbana. This is peaceful. This is sublime. That is the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. And so there's that's kind of similes for Nibbana, the destruction of craving, dispassion, the relinquishment of attachments. And so this, uh, this releasing letting go Another definition for freedom is the absence of greed, aversion, and delusion. We could say the non-arising of greed, aversion, and delusion. And to me this points too to the fact that freedom is not an acquisition. The releasing, all of these descriptions, relinquishing of attachment, the destruction of craving, 
the non-arising of greed, aversion, and delusion. Freedom is not about acquiring anything. It's all about letting go. We might feel into this a little bit. This uh, quality of dispassion. You know, very naturally as we age, we become dispassionate about things that we used to be very passionate about. What was your favorite toy when you were five years old? (laughs) You know, maybe when you were seven, you held on to it a little bit. But at this point, until I mentioned it, there wasn't interest or disinterest in that. It just didn't arise, this idea of that favorite toy. This is the kind of dispassion. It's not, it's not, the other piece of this is it's not about non-feeling either. I mean, that word dispassion maybe evokes for us a sense of not feeling. But it's dispassion Releasing of greed, aversion, and delusion. It leaves space for compassion, for love, for joy. And so here's a a quote. I'll end with this quote and one little comment about it. About freedom, realizing freedom another uh, framing for this. And this is a kind of a paradox of this um, teaching that we are looking at conditions that support the arising of freedom, conditions that support opening to freedom, I maybe should say as a, as a better way to frame it. Conditions that support opening to freedom. Because freedom is understood to be unconditioned. Nibbana is sometimes described as the unconditioned. And so there's a kind of a paradox here that we are, cons- we are con- creating conditions that allow us to open to the unconditioned. And here's how Bhikkhu Bodhi speaks of this. Though the realization of the unconditioned requires a turning away from the conditioned It must be emphasized that this realization is achieved precisely through the understanding of the conditioned. Nibbana cannot be reached by backing off from a direct confrontation with samsara to lose oneself in a blissful oblivion to the world. The path to liberation is a path of understanding, of comprehension and transcendence, not of escapism or emotional self-indulgence. Nibbana can only be attained by turning one's gaze towards samsara, towards suffering, and scrutinizing it in all its starkness. The understanding of the conditioned is the way to the unconditioned. We turn towards suffering. That is the path to freedom. Suffering is a supportive condition 
for freedom. When met with wisdom, let's sit for a minute. May our practice together be the condition that supports our own freedom and the freedom of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.